You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 411, 411. What is the 411? Well... The 411 is that I just finished another book today, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage by Gavin Ortland. Foreword written by D.A. Carson, so you know the book is good. <laughs> That's how that works. Uh, in all seriousness, I actually or I actually liked this book. And I'll tell you why that's surprising. It's surprising because I did not like another popular book of the past couple of years by a certain Ortland who is brother, as I understand it, to Gavin Ortland. Dane Ortland, I did not like his book, Gentle and Lowly. If you've been listening to my recent podcast episodes, you know that I have been in something of a tizzy over Gentle and Lowly. I am going to chew on it some more because... There's at least three possibilities when it comes to explaining why I did not care for Gentle and Lowly. One possibility is that the book is terribly, awfully bad. (laughs) My taste is good, and therefore we didn't get on. Uh, Another possibility is that the book was actually good. That's why it's so popular, and there's something deeply wrong with me. I just uh, have a contrarian spirit. I'm contentious and disagreeable and critical, Um, and the book was great, but I couldn't see it because I'm just a not very caring, loving person. The third possibility, of course, is that uh, both of these things are true at the same time. (laughs) It is a possibility that I am an awful person and also that Dane Ortland's book is an awful book. Both are possible Uh, Just because I might be sometimes uh, not the most caring, empathic, sensitive uh, of people. That does not mean that Dane Ortland's book was good. Uh, So just to be clear on that, (laughs) I'm still chewing on it. Because insofar as my review of the book might uh, actually cause more confusion and just add to the noise, I don't want to give it yet. I'm giving you little bits and pieces here and there. But actually, for now, I want to just make very, very clear that... What made me uncomfortable about Gentle and Lowly has inspired me to dig into the scriptures more, to dig into church history and to theology more, and to try and clarify what it is that I actually believe. Like, what what do I believe? What should I believe? What is sound doctrine? I am supposed to keep watch over my doctrine and practice, my mode of life, uh, my conduct, my way of relating. So are you. So are all of us. And... One of the books that has also been on my mind in pursuit of that goal has been another book that was recommended, which is written by an Ortland, uh, written by Dane Ortland's brother, Gavin Ortland. And this book is Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. Now, theological triage as a concept, I'm not 100% sure that I'm sold on. I think it could go too far. Everything can be taken too far, and theological triage is no exception. But 
generally speaking, depending on how we define our, our depending on how we define our terms, how we adjudicate potential violations of the uh, rules here, if you will. You know, I think I agree with the big idea, which is that we're going to disagree. And when we disagree, we need to prioritize. You do need to pick your battles. That's a truism. It's true. And it's a truism. Some truisms are not quite fully true. But this one is you do need to learn how to pick your battles and know how to prioritize. Know how to not be either too good or too wise, as Solomon writes in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Neither be too good nor too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And that applies to what we choose to make an issue of. If we just want to make a fight out of everything that we have our own opinion on, on the basis of having our own opinion, well, that's just foolish. That's a quick way to burn yourself out and burn everyone else out and chase everyone off. You don't want to do that. But what you do want to do is you want to take every thought captive for Christ. You want to be circumspect. You want to be diligent. You want to be sober and vigilant for your adversary. The devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is not to be taken lightly. That is something that calls for action and attention on your part, on my part, on all our parts. But included in what we need to watch out for is when we're being baited, we're being set up. We're walking into an ambush. We're walking into a trap. Something bothered us, and it was supposed to. It was supposed to lure us in, draw us in, and then lead to our downfall, our ultimate demise. And so I think it is helpful, generally speaking, before I tell you what I think specifically about Gavin Ortland's book, I think that the premise is sound that we need to figure out a way to disagree agreeably about issues which do not rise to primary importance. What does that require? That requires figuring out what is of primary importance and what is not. If you think that whether Notre Dame football uh, is just the best incontrovertibly, you may be right. You might may not be right. I don't know. Uh, I don't really watch football, honestly. So I really don't have a dog in the fight. I don't have an opinion uh, to speak of. But is that an issue of primary importance? Is it a matter of chief importance? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, If you just really, like you're just convinced that Star Trek is better than Star Wars, right? You, You might be right. You might be wrong. It's not an issue of primary importance. Even theologically, there are some issues, some questions which are very debatable, which are hard to understand, And they don't rise to the level of first importance. They're important, but they're not so important that we need to get ugly with one another and therefore violate what is also true, that we are commanded to love one another, to always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that lies within you, but to do so with gentleness and respect, to bear one another's burdens. We're also told that love is patient and kind and gentle. So if love is the goal to love the Lord our God first and foremost with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, secondarily to love one another as we love ourselves. What can Gavin Ortland tell us which may be of some use, some practical benefit to us as we strive towards that goal? 
The Goodreads.com book summary, briefly, and I quote, In theology, just as in battle, some hills are worth dying on. But how do we know which ones? When should doctrine divide? And when should unity prevail? Pastor Gavin Ortland makes the case that while all doctrines matter, some are more essential than others. He considers how and what to prioritize in doctrine and ministry, encouraging humility and grace along the way. Using four basic categories of doctrine in order of importance, this book helps new and seasoned church leaders alike wisely labor both to uphold doctrine and to preserve unity. Now, I've got a comment on that, but I'll, I'll save it for just a second. Hold, hold, uh, hold on. <laughs> I have a quick comment even on the book summary. The author's summary, also from goodreads.com. Gavin Ortland, PhD, Fuller Theological Seminary. Because it wasn't enough to be full, you need to get your PhD from a Fuller Theological Seminary. Not that they're competitive. Gavin Ortland is senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He was previously a research fellow for the Creation Project at the Carl F. H. Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That one is just made up of all kinds of win. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Man, so much winning. He is the author of Finding the Right Hills to Die On, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals and Anselm's Pursuit of Joy. And I quote, okay, so now that you have some idea of Gavin Ortland, who he is, I will say with regards to the goodreads.com book summary, this says the book is more geared towards new and seasoned church leaders alike. I don't see why we need to say church leaders in particular. I just don't see that as necessary. Why does this need to be for church leaders? Why is this not just for Christians in general? Do we need to vicariously do this only through leaders, official office holders within the church? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this is a book for everyone, actually, uh, as opposed to <laughs> Dane Hortland's book, <laughs> Kevin's brother, uh, which says that it's geared towards sinners and sufferers, which is pretty much everybody because everybody sins. We are all sinners. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all suffer. And yet, uh, I don't think it's for everybody. Anyway, one of the things I want to key in on with regards to this book, and I actually, again, I just want to reiterate, I liked the book. I thought it was good and I thought it was helpful, generally speaking, Case in point, though, Gavin and I would disagree on some things that are important. And I think he would agree that they're important, and I agree that they're important. But not only do we disagree on the things themselves, we also disagree on how important they are. So you can, you can quickly see how this can get out of hand when you're trying to talk about how do we disagree agreeably? You know, okay, well, all right, let's start with ranking our disagreements in order of importance. All right, well, I think this is very important. Well, I don't think it's very important. <laughs> like, oh, we disagree about that too. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so it begins, right? 
But really, truly, I, you know, I, I think, for instance, in chapter four, chapter two is probably my favorite, by the way, where he talks about what he calls doctrinal minimalism. And I mentioned it in yesterday's podcast as well, talking about Matthew Barrett's book, reviewing Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity. I think this is a useful chapter, chapter two in particular. If you were to only read one chapter of Finding the Right Hills to Die On, I think chapter two would be the one, given the circumstances that we're in these days, by and large. Yes, there are pockets of very hardcore, hypervigilant, dare I say it, asthmatic doctrinarians. No doubt. No doubt about it. And they need to be told to just simmer down. And I've got an analogy for you with regards to my own lungs and how sometimes they decide that they want to try to kill me to save me from breathing in particulates, but we'll get to it in a minute. Chapter four in particular, Gavin says that Eric Thomas offers a helpful list of criteria. And it's not the only list that he gives, but it I think is the first list that he gives. And I'm not familiar with Eric Thomas. I did a quick Google search to try and figure out who he was, but the closest I could find was this black pastor, preacher, um, motivational speaker is how he's also described. I didn't call him that, but that's how, that's how the internet describes him. Uh, so it must be true. <clears throat> uh, but Eric Thomas, whether that's the correct Eric Thomas or not, Uh, This is the list that Eric Thomas comes up with. Number one, biblical clarity. So is the Bible clear on this doctrine or this issue that we are disagreeing about? Uh, Number two, relevance to the character of God. Is this important to our understanding of God, to our doctrine of God? It's very, very, very important that we think rightly about God according to his word. Is this issue, this question, this disagreement relevant to the character of God and how relevant is it? Number three, relevance to the essence, relevance to the essence of the gospel. Now, there too, you know, as soon as one says, well, I don't think this is relevant to the essence of the gospel, then the one who's bringing the concern forward could say, well, no, I think it's very relevant to the essence of the gospel. And I'll give you a specific example of this as we go on, but let's just get through this list for now, and we'll come back. Number four, biblical frequency and significance. Okay, so what this means is, how often does this question or issue get addressed in the biblical text? And also, how significant does the Bible say this is? If the Bible says that this is of secondary importance, well then, it's of secondary importance. If it says it's of chief importance, first importance, then so also. Number five, effect on other doctrines. Okay, so this is where you could have a kind of domino effect. No, the thing itself is not so concerning, but it will, if handled improperly, correlate to a heterodox, potentially heretical uh, misunderstanding of some other core Christian doctrine. Right, that's an important criteria. Number six, consensus among Christians past and present. Has the church historically, down through the centuries over the past 2,000 years, 
typically held a certain view and a certain position, a certain interpretation, a certain teaching. If so, that's an important thing to note. If what is being claimed is contrary to the historical position of the church, then that's relevant. It is relevant. Why did they all get it wrong? And now this newfangled idea is the right idea. Why do we suddenly know so much better? And there could be reasons for that, but nevertheless, that's number six. Consensus among Christians past and present means also in our day, what do most Christians suppose on this? Now, again, I would say there's some qualifiers to put here. Which Christians? Who all are we counting as Christians? Right? How broadly are we defining Christian? How narrowly are we, are we defining Christian? When we're talking about Christians in the present, are we talking about Christians in the present in our immediate circle, in our local church body, in our denomination or church network, in our country? How broadly, how narrowly are we defining this? That's important to note. Number seven, effect on personal and church life. Now, this one can get sticky. This can get really sticky. If you can't tell me what practical effect a skewed view of the Trinity has on my life, on your life, that does not mean that the Trinity is no big deal, right? And this is where it's nice to have a list of criteria instead of just one criteria. If we say, well, there's only one question. Is this going to practically hurt anybody? Is it hurting you? Right? If we stop there, we say that's the only question we're going to ask. Well, then we're being very short-sighted. need to think big picture, bigger picture, more comprehensively in order to be wise here. Number eight, current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of scripture. Now this, this one, this one also, I I like, and here's, here's where I applaud Gavin Ortland because I think his even mentioning this list, having this item on it is helpful. Is there a lot of pressure which is potentially swaying us to affirm things which the Bible, you know, taking a clear, plain interpretation of the text, a historical interpretation of the text, uh, opposes? Are we affirming some things that the scriptures oppose and rebuke? Are we saying that some things are honorable and godly and righteous, which God's word says are wicked and foolish and bad and dangerous. So there is Eric Thomas's criteria, his helpful list of criteria in chapter four. Now, an interesting thing that Ordland brings up is that the overall effect of a doctrine is a recurring theme. That's important. And he says that this is not principally theological, this list of criteria. It's not principally theological, but practical. And I have a little bit of a problem with that because I think that that's a false choice. I think that our theology needs to be correct as we can make it. And yes, practicality does enter into the equation at a certain point, and it's tricky, but I think you will have a hard time in short order explaining the practical problems with, let's say, questioning or denying the virgin birth, for instance, 
right? Or to give an example on something that Gavin Ortland and I disagree about, you might have a hard time saying, well, here is a practical problem, a practical effect of rejecting young earth creationism. And he says, just to be clear, he says in the book, he's not a young earth creationist. And also that he considers young earth creationism to be a tertiary issue. He doesn't even think it's a second rate uh, issue to disagree about. He thinks it's a third rate and it doesn't belong in certainly the matters of chief importance or even secondary importance. And I, I disagree about that. I would, I would put our view on creation in the secondary category, not tertiary, not primary, but I think secondary is where it belongs uh, more properly because I think, I think there are practical concerns, uh, especially with the alternatives to young earth creationism. There are some practical concerns there. Whatever you can say of quotes by Augustine or Spurgeon, which he does bring into the discussion. Interestingly, I might add. So equally important to intelligence and ability to study, Gavin says, is a desire for personal godliness and the flourishing of the church. Now, I agree because you could have somebody who's very bright and they're able to read books very quickly. And yet you could also have that person reading for selfish motives. They're reading out of vain ambition and they're really not committed to a life of personal godliness. And they're not really invested in the flourishing of the church. That's not what is driving them. But I think here, this is one of the many points on which there's a lot of qualifiers that have to be put in. And I'll give you my overall at the end of the day, final thought on how finding the right hills to die on is helpful and how it is not helpful. But it's all too common in our culture, in the postmodern age that we live in right now, where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. There is no such thing as objective truth. Objective truth claims are, thanks to philosophers like French uh, pervert, Mountebank, reprobate, Michel Foucault. Truth is considered nothing more than a thinly disguised will to power. It's a power play. You you say that something is true and it happens to refute what somebody else wants and their self-expression, their authentic self-expression, their truth, as they call it. And that's just you trying to get power over them. Well, no, that's potentially my actually desiring godliness in my life. And also that's potentially my desiring the flourishing of the church. And this is, a, this, is a, this is a tricky thing. And it can be hard to point out in our day and age based on criteria number eight that Eric Thomas points out. The current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of scripture. But it's, it's subtle sometimes. Especially on the less popular issues that we don't think about as often. Right now, transgenderism is very much in the news. And I would like to watch the full documentary soon, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? I've watched some bits and pieces recently because my oldest sons were watching it on YouTube. And I thought, oh, I'll just you know, kind of pop my head in every now and then just to see what's going on. Uh, but I needed to work, so I got back to work and stopped watching, didn't watch the whole thing. Also, I'd like to do a review of Rebecca 
uh, Merkel's documentary, Even Exile, available on Canon Press or Canon Plus, I guess, is their streaming. It's Canon Plus is Canon Press's streaming service. And we've really liked it so far. I'll just say that. Uh, put in a plug for Canon Plus. But nevertheless, you go around asking people, what is a woman? Like, very basic question. What is a woman? Can you tell me what a woman is? We're all concerned about women's rights right now with Roe v. Wade being overturned, potentially, by the Supreme Court. What is a woman? People can't give a definition. Well, it's just whoever feels like a woman, right? Do you feel like a woman? Is it your truth that you're a woman? Well, then you're a woman. We have to affirm that. Mm. So, that you know, that's an example... <laughs> <laughs> that's an example that we're all familiar with. And yet there are lots of other subtler examples that are less familiar to us, but have at their root that same rejection of objective truth on the grounds that it's bullying us for someone else to point out, Hey, we're not quite correct on this. Uh, I would recommend a really great resource for you. And actually uh, Matt Walsh interviews I was tickled to hear this. He interviews Carl R. Truman in his documentary, What is a Woman? Uh, Carl R. Truman, I really respect him. I would love to shake his hand or high-five him, whichever he prefers, someday. Uh, His book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is just excellent, and you should all buy a copy and read it. But there is a very clear break with traditional ways of thinking and reasoning, which has happened over the past few hundred years. And it's been very deliberate, very intentional, very rebellious, and it marches forward apace. And it also creeps into the church, and it also creeps into our conversations about doctrine, life and practice, and the business of the church, the affairs conducting of the business of the church. So that's a thought to consider, I think, with regards to this. But Ortland says, intelligence and ability to study is equally important to a desire for godliness and the flourishing of the church. But that is to say, godliness and the flourishing of the church being a motivator for you is equally important to intelligence and the ability to study. So don't think that it needs to be either or. Ideally, it's going to be all of the above. Although I would put a caveat in, even if it is all of the above, in our day and age, it is so Easy. It is far too easy for these things to be separated out and for the fact that you study diligently or that you are methodical, analytical, that you have taken time to prepare your positions on things. You know what you're about. You know what you believe. You're confidently asserting what it is that you believe because you've thought about it and you've studied it out. It is all too easy to dismiss that as ungodly because it's divisive, supposedly, allegedly. And it's also, by extension, once you've established that somebody is warped and unloving and ungodly and just full of selfish ambition and harshness for their brothers and sisters, it's very easy to take the next jump and to say, well, you're clearly not invested in the flourishing of the church because you're being divisive right now. You're breaking the church and you're not supposed to do that. And so... Be quiet, right? But there's a sense in which he's right, and that sense is where I have known people who are very smart, they're studious, 
but they're not committed to a life of personal godliness and holiness. And they're not interested really in the church doing well. They're just interested in getting their shots in and moving on. And that's not good. Also, what's not good is having a kind of listless, directionless, rudderless, forlorn desire for godliness and the flourishing of the church. But thinking that that means sentimentality and that it won't mean diligent study or sharing out loud what it is that you have found in study and meditation and thinking carefully. So it's not either or. It needs to be both and. And I do agree with him so long as we have some caveats there. What he says as well is that this concern, this concern for the flourishing of the church and a life of personal godliness will generate the kind of instinct that drives godly and wise judgments and that such will help us steer away from self-reverential considerations such as our pet peeves, preferences, and prejudices. Now, I'll put another caveat here. I agree with him, and yet the devil is very much in the details. Very much. And again, I would refer you to point eight in the list he gives from this Eric Thomas, who I don't know, current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of scripture. It is far too easy to go with the crowd, to jump on bandwagons, and to say, when somebody brings up an issue of doctrinal concern, theological concern, concerning scripture, concerning our life and practice, considering what we're affirming, what we're denying, it's all too easy to say, well, that's just your opinion, right? That's just your preference, but... Some of us disagree. So I, you know, my, opinion, my opinion beats your opinion, so we're even. No, that's not, that's not biblical teaching, right? Like that is denying a teaching of scripture, that God's word is authoritative. So we need to watch out for that. I agree with him with a caveat that the devil's in the details, but more on that in a minute. Ortland says also, even in our polemics, we must subordinate our personal likes and dislikes to the concerns of the kingdom. Now, what he's not saying, and I, I'm fairly certain of this because I think he presents a fairly balanced treatment of the two extremes that we want to avoid and how wisdom requires that we avoid both of these extremes. I don't think what he's saying here is that if your personal conscience is just deeply bothered you should put that on the shelf in the interest of so-called unity. He's not saying that. That is not biblical. That is not in keeping with the history of the church. That is not honoring to God. That is not actually going to advance the concerns of the kingdom, actually. But there is such a thing as putting our own personal likes and dislikes at the fore. And when the discussion of our objection, concern, complaint really gets down to brass tacks, it comes out that, well, we just don't like such and such. We just, we just prefer this. We just prefer that. We just don't prefer this. We just don't prefer that. You know what? If it's just your opinion, make sure you're putting your own opinion in the right category. And by the way, too, if your own personal preference could be mixed in, and this is kind of how I'm trying to approach gentle and lowly, 
I hope, I say kind of, because I hope it's the way, and I'm sure it's not only this, but again, more on that in a minute. It could be that I just don't personally like this romantic language that's being employed to talk about my Savior, my Lord and Savior, who is King. I don't like the idea that the language here is very, as I see it, effeminate. I don't like that. And I think that if I'm right, that it is intentionally written to imitate romance novels after a fashion or a Hallmark movie after a fashion to try and market this by association with what we perceive to be gentle and lowly and winsome and attractive and alluring. He even uses that word in the book. Sorry, we're not doing a review of gentle and lowly right now. That will come later. But, you know, insofar as it might just be my own personal dislike that he used that word, I wouldn't have used that word. Well, then I need to subordinate my own personal dislike and call it what it is. Just say like, hey, I just personally don't like this. And not go looking in the scriptures for eisegetical proof text to support my position. Now, on the other hand, if there's a mixture, hey, some of this is just, I just personally don't care for that. I don't like it. I don't like your cover image. It's ugly to me. Why'd you pick that? Okay, do you have a biblical concern? No, I just don't like it. I just think it's ugly. Okay, you know, that's fine. Still be, you know, nice about it maybe. Although, by the way, with regards to both Gavin Ortland's book and Dane Ortland's book that I read, both books that I just recently read, I liked both of their uh, book covers. If I were judging a book by its cover, both of them did well. So there's that. Moving on, though. Uh, Ortland also, Gavin, that is, gives us a list of questions that Wayne Grudem recommends. This is similar. It's also eight items long. Uh, it's similar to Eric Thomas's list, but different uh, in some slight ways. For instance, the order and also some of what's included and what's not included. Point number one, list of questions to ask. How certain are we of this doctrine or concern? How certain are we? How sure are you about what's actually going on here and what is true and what is not true that you're opposed to or what is proper and what is not proper, what is godly and what is wicked, what is wise and what is foolish. How sure are you? How certain are you? That's point number one. Point number two, effect on other doctrines, which is also in Eric Thomas's list. Number three, effect on personal and church life, which is also, it's worded differently. Uh, that is also in Eric Thomas's list. Point number four, historical precedent, which is also just worded differently from Eric Thomas's list. Point number five, perception of importance among God's people, which again, this is worded a little bit differently. Eric Thomas says it like consensus among Christians past and present, but Wayne Grudem's doing okay as well to say perception of importance among God's people. That's probably actually that's a, a way of wording it that I would agree with more, the perception of importance, right? Is it perceived to be important? That's an important thing to note. Now, it might, as I would add, it might not be perceived as very important because this is a blind spot and because the sheep do need a shepherd and sometimes shepherds 
also have the same blind spots that the sheep do. And that's part of why the sheep have the blind spots. Just saying. There was not, for no reason, a Protestant Reformation when Luther came into the picture, when the likes of Calvin helped to shore up and solidify, codify, if you will, the uh, principles of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and others. Point number six, here's another question that we should ask, the question of the purpose of the organization. Point number seven, motivations of advocates for a certain position that we disagree with in particular. Motivations of advocates. And this is honestly, like, I love that this is in here because I think this is really important. And I have gotten, I wouldn't say dinged, but close to, close to being dinged or uh, criticized here recently for speculating about the motives of advocates of woke Christianity. Wayne Grudem puts it in his list of questions that he recommends we ask when it comes to disagreement on doctrinal issues and on the Christian life, Christian life and thought. We should be questioning or considering at least the motivations of the advocates of the position that is being espoused. And I think this relates actually to point number eight on Eric Thomas's list, which is the current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of scripture. I think it's two sides of the same coin in many cases. It might not be all that is meant by Wayne Grudem's seventh question here, but cultural pressure can definitely be a factor. If you're afraid of people, especially the people who are most likely to firebomb your church or throw a Molotov cocktail through your parlor window or what have you, right? Show up protesting it, a Sunday morning service, harassing your parishioners, chasing people off, giving you unfavorable news coverage. You know, that's something to consider as a potential motivation for your advocacy of a position or against a certain position. Also, point number eight, methods of advocates. What methods are employed and are those methods actually ungodliness? Do they reveal a kind of hypocrisy where in our affirmation of something we say is so biblical, we are acting in a thoroughly ungodly way and we don't care. And that really does undermine the credibility of our claims that we're so concerned with godliness. Godliness for thee, but not for me, apparently. Also, too, some additional questions from Gavin Ortland that I thought were helpful. And this is, I think you could say, just a summing up in some measure of Eric Thomas's list and Wayne Grudem's list. But he asks the question of how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? How clear is the Bible? Number two, what is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? And this one's debatable like everything else, but I think it's still a good question to ask. Number three, what is the testimony of the historical church with regards to this doctrine? Again, he's just reiterating what Eric Thomas and Wayne Grudem said, but insofar as he's repeating it, he's agreeing with it and affirming it. And I agree as well. What is the testimony of the historical church with regards to this doctrine? Number four, what is this doctrine's effect on the church today? And again, we'll come full circle to my biggest caveat with the book as a whole. This can be a difficult thing to communicate because we don't necessarily always know what the effect will be. Or sometimes 
There are other explanations for phenomena we are seeing in the church which are preferred because the elephant in the room, there is little to no appetite. There's uh, actually negative appetite for addressing. What is the doctrine's effect on the church today? Well, you start pointing out, well, I think this and this and this and this and this is caused by such and such. And then all of a sudden you get the pushback. Well, no, actually, I think those are just caused by some other thing, actually, which is more convenient to attribute those issues and concerns to. So I think in summary, I would say where I think Gavin Ortland's book is useful, I don't think that this is something only church leaders should read. I think this is actually something that every Christian who has ever disagreed with other Christians should read. I think this is something every Christian should read and grapple with. And I think this is useful as a kind of inventory. You're going to do an internal inventory of what's in your head and what's in your heart and ask yourself these questions. Don't get trapped into a never-ending loop, never-ending feedback loop of navel-gazing. Don't do that. But do, do ask yourself the question, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? Now, it might be clear enough to where my conscience compels me to hold the position that I do, but it might not be clear enough that I'm going to fault my brother if he comes to a different conclusion and has a viable explanation. What is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? Well, I think it's important, but I don't think that somebody's either going to heaven or they're going to hell based on whether they agree with me on this. I think that's an important thing to realize. I think that's an important thing for us to admit to ourselves sometimes. Ask the question. Ask it. And however you answer it, I think it's a good question to ask. Also, too, part of why I really appreciated chapter two in this book is because he is saying up front that not just what are termed core gospel issues are important. More than just the core gospel is important. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And as Gavin asks, I agree, profitable for what? Sometimes the question needs to be asked. Sometimes I think we do well to rather than getting so caught up in the anxiety of, is everybody going to hate me for bringing this up? Am I going to lose friends? Are people going to be upset with me? Perhaps it would be more useful to sit down and write it out and ask, hey, profitable for what? What do I believe that this scripture is profitable for? And be intentional about that. And then have a ready answer when you do present your concern and say, hey, I think this scripture is profitable for this in conjunction with the whole counsel of God here, 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 here. And I think you might be misunderstanding or misapplying this text. Your salvation maybe doesn't depend on it, but your fruitfulness, I think, does. And here's why. And that might just go a lot farther or at a minimum, even if you are dismissed, written off, chased away on the grounds that you're being divisive, making trouble, whatever. At a minimum, I know from experience you will have a better conscience. It'll still hurt, but you'll have a better conscience before the Lord your God that way. And so I think Gavin Ortland is saying some helpful things here with regards to that. What I don't think is necessarily 
as helpful, and I think it will actually just feed on itself. Uh, it create more of the same trouble that the book is supposed to address. If this becomes a guidebook for refereeing what we talk about and what we don't talk about, I think that's not so good. You know, as soon as somebody brings up something you just don't want to get into, you just say, "Oh, it's, you know, that's not a primary issue, so we're not going to talk about it." Well, that, no, that's not healthy, right? That that's not good, and I don't think that's what Gavin is getting at. But even if he were, I would disagree because I think there are so many little areas. Uh, take for instance, if you are a hardcore, everything is a primary issue type person, well, then. It, there, there just won't be any reasoning with you and you'll just dismiss it out of hand anytime somebody tries to say, well, hey, I don't think that's of primary importance because you think everything's of primary importance, right? And also too, you might take these questions and you might run with them to build a concrete case for why anybody who disagrees with you is just totally out to lunch and not a Christian. And that's not so good. Some of the people who disagree with you might not be Christians, sure. Right. They might think that they're Christians. Jesus says that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So that's that's a factor, but he knows, right? That's really what I'm trying to get at. The good Lord knows, and he testifies. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. And that's where I think this book can be helpful in conjunction with studying the scriptures and studying our own hearts before the Lord our God. I think this can be helpful, but it ought not to be used. Because I've here, here's my big concern. I, there was once upon a time a case in which I was being sinned against, my family was being sinned against by another leading family in a church that we were very, very involved in years ago. And I wanted to go to the representative leaders of this family and say, hey, you're sinning against my family. Or if I've sinned against you, please tell me what it is that I've done or my family has done to deserve the way that you are treating us. And the counsel that I got was not only, no, don't do that, regardless what Matthew 18 says, but it was also, now we're all going to go through this book, The Bait of Satan, which I, I, I think Gavin Ortland's book is not that. To be clear, I think Gavin Ortland's book is much, much better than *The Bait of Satan*. John Bevere, I think, was the author of that. But nevertheless, I feel as though that book by John Bevere was used as a kind of broom for sweeping under the rug <laughs> my concerns, and insofar as. There are plenty of points in Gavin's book to latch onto if you are a doctrinal minimalist or if you are a doctrinal legalist. I would recommend against trying to use this book on someone else because there are far too many very subjective questions. Far too many introspective questions, I guess I would say. And by the nature of a lot of the kinds of disagreements that might come up in our day, we should be careful to not rely over much on Gavin Ortland's book here. Now, this might be part of why he's marketing it 
more to church leaders than to lay people. But nevertheless, I think lay people do well to read through this and actually, you know, if they have a legitimate concern to be able to check all of the categories and before they bring that issue up and bring it forward, they've already done their homework and they have gone through and they've said, hey, you know, this, 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 this. And their their odds of being taken seriously and listened to and having a profitable, beneficial, edifying discussion with a agreeable ending are maximized. And so that's how I would recommend it. If I were going to recommend it to somebody, I would recommend it in that light, but I would not recommend it as something to give to people to make them go away and get locked into a um, eternal navel-gazing paralysis, analysis paralysis. So in short, I think it was a good book. I think it was helpful. I like that he admits that he's a fallible person writing this. Uh, I will say on the young earth creationism bit, I disagree with him about that being a tertiary issue. I think it is a secondary issue. I think it does have an impact on primary issues. I'm inclined to agree with Answers in Genesis and the like, Ken Ham and the like about the impact that our view of Genesis has on our view of the rest of Scripture. I think it can be useful to look at what Augustine said, look at what Spurgeon said, look at what Machen had to say, and yet they are not Scripture. Sola Scriptura means we can consider what they had to say, and yet also at the same time, Scripture is the only infallible just like Gavin Ortland's book is not infallible by his own admission, neither were the works of Spurgeon or Machen or Bavinck or Luther or Calvin or Augustine, as much as I've enjoyed all of their work that I've read thus far and intend to read more of. So young earth creationism, I don't agree with Gavin Ortland, but yet on the other hand, I think that based on this framework here, I think if he were to read through this and apply it in a discussion between he and I on young earth creationism, and if I were to read through this and apply it in a discussion with him on young earth creationism, I think we would have a much more beneficial conversation about young earth creationism. And I think it's entirely acceptable to regard him as a Christian brother if indeed he's in Christ no less if he says, you know, I'm just, I'm not a young earth creationism. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know what he is, but he's not a young earth creationism proponent. You know, for him to say, I'm not a young earth creationism proponent. I don't know what he is instead, but I think we could have a reasonable discussion about it. So long as the devil in the details is not anytime you disagree about how important this is, you get shot down. Oh no, we're not going to talk about that in the interest of unity. Right, That's not so good. That's not so good. Also, another thing I'm sure we disagree about, uh, he says pretty early in the book, that he loves and has been so helped, encouraged, led, molded by the works of Tim Keller. Again, that is a trip hazard for me because I could not disagree with Tim Keller more on the question of wokeness, critical race theory, systemic racism, I think this whole list here, when I consider it in light of Keller's, uh, Tripp's, Platt's advocacy of wokeness 
in recent years, critical race theory, systemic racism. Uh, you know, when I consider this whole list of criteria in relation to the kinds of things that they've said, I think to myself, maybe they could stand to read Gavin Ortland's book because maybe they're not acting like they're familiar with the content of it. Uh, but that is to say, you know, just for exactly that reason, I think in our day and age, there needs to be a greater appetite for us discussing these things without a quick resorting to your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Because if we're not careful, this pursuit of unity could very quickly turn into what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, as long as we both agree on John 3.16. And that's just not, that that's not the path to a robust, fruitful Christian life, a mature Christian life. I don't get the idea when I read what Paul writes to Timothy, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. I don't get the idea from that, that we're supposed to be intentionally on a feedback loop. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. And then I got to close because it's all the time I've got for this episode. But I took a shower yesterday and when I got out of the shower, got all dressed up, came out, came back to my computer to make sure I hadn't gotten any messages, missed any messages from work. This is what was playing on my computer. Take a listen. And it just goes on like that. <laughs> it just, it just for ten hours, actually, ten hours and two minutes and forty-five seconds. It just, like, it's the intro to "Never Going to Give You Up" by Rick Astley, but it's just on a loop, and it never actually starts the song. It just plays the intro over and over and over and over. And so you're always expecting the song to start, but it never does. And it's funny because Rick Rolling is. Uh, just an epic internet meme, but also it's funny because we don't want to be like that with regards to our Christian faith, where it's always just the gospel, but we're not actually fulfilling the great commission. If we only ever stick to the strict gospel, John three sixteen. just every time we open the Bible, that's all we read is John three sixteen. No, Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, what does that mean? And also, what does it mean that Paul writes, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a little bit in between that I'm not saying every single time I quote it, but the important thing, I think, is there are four things that we're supposed to do with all scripture, and yet the end goal is that the man of God might be complete, not incomplete, not immature, not always just drinking milk all the time. Not always just playing the intro to never going to give you up on a loop over and over and over and over again. That's a great way to go insane. So that's all the time I've got. Check out 
Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage by Gavin Ortland. If I missed anything, let me know. But overall, I think I generally agree with it. As far as a way to agree agreeably or to disagree agreeably, although we might disagree on some of the points therein, is the need for a framework for being able to communicate about our disagreements because I think that's part of our job as Christians. I think that's part of the reason we meet together. That's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. But nevertheless, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.